0: Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Sunday of Mary of Egypt. It's the Sunday of a woman who became a beacon to somebody else by her own repentance. And the real conversion in the story is not so much her, although it's certainly her that we focus on because her conversion was so immense and lasted so long. But one of the main conversions is actually that of Zosimus. He's the one that tells the story. And he's telling the story because of his own conversion. And he's so in awe of Mary's conversion that it forces him to hold himself accountable. Again, like I said yesterday, Zosimus thought he was the best monk in the world. He could not find anyone else that was as holy as he was. And so he traveled from monastery to monastery looking to find someone that could mentor him, someone that could be as holy as him, guide him further in holiness. And of course, God sent him this woman, a naked woman wandering around in the desert, and she became immediately realizing to him the conversion she had gone through, the repentance she had gone through, the life she was leaving out in the desert for decades. And this was an immediate conversion for him. He immediately had a turning around, a reorientation of his life. Seeing this amazing um, one who was so repentant. But as one who talks too much and who's an extrovert, um, I love the fact that the tradition was when he left the monastery where he found her, that you went wandering the desert for 40 days, you came back for Great and Holy Thursday, and you couldn't tell anybody what you experienced while you were out in the desert. You could only talk to Jesus about it. For those of us that like to talk, you know how incredibly hard that is. <laughs> And so he encountered this woman, and he could not say anything for years. a whole year, he went back the next year, met her again, brought her the Eucharist, could not say anything. Went back the third year, went out, and he found her dead, and he buried her, could not say anything until he got permission. You wonder if all of these monks were wondering what changed this man, what made him so humble, something he encountered out in the desert. He went out there. He went out there and something changed him. But he couldn't say what it was until he was able to give him permission to write all of this down, of course, for our benefit. Thank God for him. Thank God for his superior who let him do that. Thank God for Mary of Egypt. But we see something similar in the Gospel. with James and John, they've just encountered Christ, of course, in the transfiguration. They've seen his divinity shining through his humanity. Now they come and Jesus is teaching them what's, what he's going to undergo. He's gonna undergo something that begins the beginning of repentance. What Jesus undergoes in the passion and death, he sanctifies suffering. He changes it. He makes it beautiful. This is why Mary of Egypt, 400 years later, gonna go off and have such a redemptive change. And now this could be such a beacon to Zosimus, this priest, this monk who walks out there and is so arrogant, is able to have such a turning away, such such an immediate change. I think there's something in this retreat I've been talking all about, not only having the conversion that is our, in our own heart, but then carrying that out into the world and what that looks like to the world. How we Christians become a beacon in our own evangelization. We take what we've received. I shared with you my love of, of the Roman Catholic tradition of having unleavened bread because it reminds that, that when they receive the Eucharist, more of unleavened bread that they need to be in haste. They need to be in haste. Go out and share this with others. This is not just for you. You are to travel, you are to go, you are to go to the world. By the way, one version in our Byzantine tradition that is similar is the Ambon prayer. The Ambon prayer, when the priest comes out and prays the prayer outside, he goes back in. That's a dismissal prayer. That's ascending forth. That's a, the priest stands up there in the ambon. It used to be this tower here in the middle of the church that everybody could hear. And as people were filing out, he was blessing them all with his prayer, sending them forth. Take what you just received and go to the world. Do not become gluttonous with this sustenance that you've eaten and drank, but go out and and exercise it by giving this gift to the rest of the world. Another thing we do is the kissing of the cross, the anointing at the end. This is very much a sending forth. Those of you that have the benefit of getting married in our Byzantine church, Know that as you walked around the tetrapod of the dance of Isaiah, the priest held up the cross like this because it was a beacon, it was a guide. Follow the cross, follow its example. In this journey of life, look to the cross because this is what love looks like. And If you think that love is anything but this, you're wrong. Your honeymoon is not love. Your honeymoon is way too easy. (laughs) Love is changing your spouse's bedpan when you're both in your 90s. That's love having persevered through your entire life and lived this cross. That is what true love is. I always tell the couples that I marry, including some that are here, like, you have no idea what love is. You sit there, hold each other's hand. You're way too good-looking. You're way too charming. You're way too fun to hang out with. Right? That's not love. Give it 30, 40, 50 years. Then, then you'll know what love is. But There's something about this moment of conversion, this reorientation and carrying out what we have into the world. Um, I want to share a story about one of the simple conversions that our Lord has done through me recently that I was not able to share um, during the retreat. Um, as I shared during the retreat, I love going out to coffee shops and bars and restaurants and becoming a regular there. And it's become a regular once they see my face and kind of start gossiping with each other. There's a priest sitting there, the priest sitting there, a priest sitting there. And after a while, they actually come to me and they, they want to ask questions. So there was this one bar in Los Angeles where I would go and and I started getting well-known among the staff. And there was this one girl who I only found out later who didn't want to be one of those who became friends with the priest. She was totally against that, so she'd kind of make fun of those who were doing this. And she just she's kind of a rebel at heart. So finally, one day, she had had a really, really bad experience and sinned horrifically the day before in a way that hurt her and others in a deeply immense way. And so she decided to see me at the bar the next day, that this was the day she was gonna come talk to me. So she walks up and she says, are you really a priest? I said, yes. And I, I like to sit right where, the, right where the bartender makes the drinks, right by the well, and also where the staff comes up to get the drinks, because then you're, you're able to encounter or talk to more. So that was my spot. And so she comes up and she stands where she picks up drinks and goes, are you really a priest? I said, yes. And she says, then can I go to confession? I said, oh, like sacramental confession? No. She just, I want to share what I did last night. And then she proceeds to share the gory details of all these horrible things she did. And at first, I thought, what I've encountered before, that she was just trying to scandalize me. She was trying to get me awkward, anxious, get me so I I was uncomfortable there. I thought that was her goal at first, and so I wasn't going to let her win. (laughs) So I just kept on sitting there and listening, listening, listening. And then the spirit put something in my heart as she continued the story. The spirit told me, she hates herself. She hates herself. What she did, she's not boasting of. She's trying to boast. She's making it look like she's boasting. She's trying to make me awkward. But she hates herself and what she did. And then I realized what she's doing is she's finding an easy target to confirm her own self-hatred. Who can I go, who can I find that's going to hate me as well? And then I have justification for my own self-hatred. So she came up and she's sharing all this. A priest is an easy target. Any Christian is an easy target. Christians like to judge, right? That's what we do best. Right? We're bigots and we're scoffers, we're judges. So she shares all of this with me. And I was trying to fight the temptation to judge. I was trying to fight the temptation to get awkward like I thought she wanted. And then I just responded and I said, like, are you okay? Like, That's rough. You know, are you okay? Like, Not the person she hurt, not the world, but are you okay? And she looked, of course, kind of awkward. That wasn't the response she expected from the priest who she was trying to manipulate. And then she kind of walked away being awkward. But 10 minutes later, I just feel these arms come around the back of me. (laughs) And then she like walks away without looking me in the eye. But there was something. And then as I go to say goodbye, she walks up, gives me a hug, walks out. Every time I walk in there, she gives me hugs, I walk in. And now she comes to my parish twice a week. Like evangelical, still has not said she wants to become Catholic. But she comes and she assists by the fire pit, she brings her dogs, and she tells, she introduced me to her mom. She tells all of her friends about the fact that she has she's friends with a priest. And I thought there was something about this moment of conversion that I've had, because I've had self-hatred, as I think all of us have. And we realize in those moments we try to find easy targets. We try to find, we build up these scenarios in our heads as we get angrier and angrier and angrier. And if we can find one person to kind of confirm that, then we're justified. This is such an evil thing. This is such a thing that, that, that brings immense shame. And we Christians need to be different. We Christians need to go out in the world and, and and listen to the Spirit, which of course I don't always do. But in this moment it was pretty explicit. And it was kind of an easy target for the spirit to give someone consolation. So I want to share some words I also didn't get to yesterday. Um, These are not my words. These are the writings of an early church father um, called Diognetus. I'm sorry, his name is not Diognetus. It's an unknown name. He wrote a letter to Diognetus. And so it's an anonymous church father who wrote a letter. He's likely Christian. He's likely writing to a pagan. And so he wants, within the first centuries of the church, when Christianity was still illegal, he wants to describe what it means to be a Christian. So I'm going to read two paragraphs, and pardon my use of my computer in church. I don't have it memorized, and I didn't print it out, so I was using my computer all day yesterday. This is a letter to Diognetus, and it's an apologia. It's, he is doing apologetics. He's trying to defend and explain the Christian faith. And this is, by the way, catechesis. I explained yesterday the two forms of a catechumen, right? A catechumen for the first 40 days, the, the 40 days of the great fast, they were learning how to live as a Christian. In the early church, they never learned what baptism was or what the creed was, right? The doors, the doors, that meant lock the catechumens out. We're about to say the creed and they have no Conception of what the creed is because they haven't received the grace of baptism yet. It's, the creed is completely irrational. Right? So is celibacy, by the way. Right? These things are completely irrational. You, you, you have to have the grace of God to be able to even comprehend the beginnings of these things, all these deep mysteries. So it would kick the catechumens out. The catechumens were just learning how to live as a Christian because the world was so unchristian. This, you had to change your whole life. After They were baptized. Then they went through the mystagogy period until Pentecost, and that's when they learned what it meant to be Christian, what it meant to live out the gift you've already received. What does that sound like? sounds like marriage, right? You get crowned in marriage, and then you learn through the course of your life what marriage is. You have no idea what it is before that. So you're spending your entire life tapping into saying, what have I received? What have I done? This is why I encourage couples to take the crowns. If they had flower crowns, put them in their bedroom above the bed with a cross in between. So that when you're mad at your spouse, they're not treating you like they should. Just walk in there, point at the crowns. Honey, you already got crowned. You already died to yourself for me, and you're not acting like it. You know, I'm going to put that right above your bed. Uh, you know, put this in the background on your phone. You know? <laughs> Make sure you look at that crown every single time you open your phone. So here he is talking about the manner of life for Christians. Notice, this has nothing to do with the deeper mysteries, the realities. This is nothing to do with the grace of the Holy Spirit living in a life. This is just what it looks like to be a Christian in the early centuries when they were surrounded by pagans. He's talking to a pagan. For Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor do they lead a life which is marked out by any singularity the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any mere human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them, has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet they endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They marry as do others, and they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the law by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and they are restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. The soul is dispersed through the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though itself suffers no injury, because it is prevented from enjoying pleasures, The world also hates the Christians, though in no wise injured, because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it, and loves also the members. Christians likewise love those who hate them. The soul is imprisoned in the body, yet keeps together that very body, and Christians are confined to the world as in a prison, and yet they keep together in the world. The immortal soul dwells in a mortal tabernacle, and Christians dwell as sojourners in corruptible bodies looking for the incorruptible dwelling in the heavens. The soul, but ill provided for with food and drink, becomes better. In like manner, the Christians, though subjected day by day to punishment, increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it were unlawful for them to forsake. In other words, Christians are in the world, but not of the world. We go out. We go out like James and John, right? What did Jesus say to them? You are indeed gonna drink the chalice that I drink and be baptized in the baptism of death that I am baptized in. In other words, you're gonna be martyrs. James died very, very early. John lived to be a very, very old man. These two brothers were martyrs in different ways. One went into the world and expended himself in the world. One was killed by the world. Mary of Egypt went in the desert because she needed that. Zosmas went back into the world, into the monastery. And of course, they've inspired many to do the same. We Christians are like sleeper cells. We, we tend to look, look like everybody else. And we go and we have our jobs. We sit in the restaurants. We are citizens of this world and yet citizens of the next. And like he says, we are like the soul of the body. The soul that the body rejects and wants to conquer because the soul makes us feel bad. And yet, if we can build up this body around us, this is what we do. So please discern well, God may be calling you to become a monk or a nun. To go and be the heart of the body. When all of us, the rest of us, go out. As I said during the retreat, please go to the world with confidence. You are earthen vessels that are carrying the light of Christ. You are tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. God has given you and me as gifts to the world. We go out into evil places like sheep among wolves. One of the things that I find the reason why people are more comfortable with me out in the bar is because they certainly would not be comfortable with me in my church. I'm going out to where they are. That's their world. That's where they are comfortable. And so they are much easier to talk because they're going to win in a fight. Most of the people around them are going to agree with them and not me. There has to be a vulnerability. Again, like sheep among wolves that we go out, but we have to have the deep confidence that we've undergone conversions. We are carrying the love of God, and we can't reject like we're in a war or a fight. We're on their side. We're on their side. Their souls were created by God, and God loves every single one of those souls. So let us then, as we do on Easter, what do we do on Pascha morning? We sit in our church all day. (laughs) We hang out with our family all day. Pascha is for us. Pascha is a reception, the grace of the resurrection. We can be in our bubble. We can be with the people we love. We can be where we feel safe. We need that. We need to be fed. We need to receive our medicine. We need to receive the grace of Christ. What happens the next day? We proclaim that same gospel from the four corners of the church. We proclaim it to the world. We are sent out. Again, as sheep among wolves, as a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, as earthen vessels carrying the light of Christ. So this, this conversion that we undergo, because we're still in the great fast, let us undergo this conversion in fullness. Let us be weak and humble. Let us be vulnerable. Let us be broken. That's what Christ came to fix. But then once we've been fed, let us go out and carry this with confidence into the world. Amen? Glory to Jesus Christ.